Our reading is taken from the book of Revelation. We'll start in chapter 4, read through that chapter, and through the end of chapter 5. You remember that John is exiled uh, because of being a Christian. He's persecuted. He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And on that island, as his heart is turned toward the Lord, he receives a series of extraordinary revelations that the Father gives the Son to give to John to give to the church. After the letters, uh, the messages to the uh, seven churches, in chapter 4, we see this wonderful scene. In chapter 4 and 5, really one great scene. The, we see God the Father enthroned and worship of Him. And then we see the return of the victorious Savior, Christ, who is a lamb, but also a lion. And he comes and takes the scroll, the will of God, that's yet to be uh, opened up and uh, accomplished. He takes that scroll and he is seated beside the Father to rule over all things on behalf of his Father. Revelation 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse which I, uh, first voice, sorry, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was, on, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, or a sardius, in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, were something, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is. And who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. To him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. And will worship him who lives forever and ever. And will cast their crowns before the throne saying. Worthy are you our Lord and our God. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, 
And because of your will, they existed and were created. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, let's turn our hearts and seek this King in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our everlasting God, our Father, you have turned your face toward a people who turned their back toward you. You have sought a people who sought to escape your rule, your gaze, your words, your love. You loved us when we were unlovely and you drew all the reasons for loving us from within yourself, not from us. And God, we come this morning the first day of this week, to give you the first moments of the week to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, victorious, obedient, the final Adam, the representative who did not in any fashion fail, but accomplished all your good pleasure, the one man who offered you every single thing you deserve, the God-man. Father, we come to you because... You have made a way through him. 
His obedience, clothing the believer, his death, tearing the the veil so that we might come near, washed, pardoned, adopted, commanded. And we meet you this morning, not just at a cross or an empty grave, but on a throne. We come to you not just for forgiveness or for strength for the moment, encouragement, clarity. God, these are all precious gifts. We come to you because you are worthy. You are king. You are life itself. Every perfection finds itself in you without limit, indescribably big and good and pure. We come this morning, we ask, that you would hear our songs, answer our prayers, stoop down like a father and teach us because we are a needy people and we want to offer you something that you find pleasing through the beloved. Teach us how to walk with you. Teach us how to stir our hearts. Help us to make Use of every aspect of this word that you've given us that the psalmist calls an inheritance. We thank you for an inheritance that spins every day of our Christian life. For an inheritance that is good for every area, that is good for us and for our children and for our neighbors. An inheritance that we get to enjoy with the one who gave it. God, we pray that you would give us such grateful hearts. And not just us, but what about your work across this world as the gospel is preached today down the street in other countries and other languages as men and women and young people gather and the, the, the prayers are offered and there will surely be countless hearts that are full of things that they wish they could somehow gather the words for, whether words of joy or broken-hearted grief, you know. So, Father, meet your people. Spread your kingdom. May your son's name be lifted up above every competitor, and may his perfect will be done in us, through us, and everywhere. We ask it in his name. Amen. We've been looking at the theme of worship in the past weeks, and uh, I want us to come back to that, and I think that probably this will be our last look at that. It's, it's been too short. There's so much more we could say, but it's meant just to be um, maybe a reminder of what we have a chance to do together and throughout the week, to live Godward lives. God has accomplished through the work of his son, applied by the spirit, everything required to bring you to himself. In his infinite perfection as as the divine person and in his astonishing work, the believer finds everything he or she needs. Our hearts are captivated. They're they're taken, you know... uh, They're taken captive by the charms of Christ. Our souls are satisfied. We find real rest for the first time. And the paradox 
The mystery of this is that the Christian, instead of being focused always on ourselves and, you know, and how good God is being to us, and in many ways, in worship, we, we become self-forgetful, as Clyde Cranford said in the little book, Because We Love Him. We become self-forgetful as we become preoccupied with Him. I want us to consider how to live that kind of life more consistently, how to apply what we've been talking about in the past month. Uh, this past week, Chris Green and Steve Crampton and I did a podcast that Media Gratia does uh, only three or four times a year. We try to do it quarterly. It's not always that, that much. Sometimes, it's, well, I think it's been three times a year. Uh, it requires a lot of work of other people. I don't have to do all the work for this. So Chris and Steve did the work, and I just kind of bounced questions back and forth between them. When I left the house to go film, I was kind of running late, so I had a sandwich in my hand, you know, and I was, that was my lunch, so I was running out the door, and Misty said such a kind thing to me, because, you know, I already feel a little intimidated with Chris and Steve. She said, have fun playing with the smart kids today. I, I felt a little insulted. Then I thought, poor AC. I play with AC every day. He ain't one of the smart kids. No, that's not what I thought, actually. I just felt I couldn't pass it up. We talked about a book written by the, the man that most consider the greatest medieval theologian, Anselm of Canterbury. Born, he's, he's an Italian man. He is a Roman Catholic. He eventually becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. His book is not perfect, but Anselm, that, the book that he wrote, Curdeus Homo, Why God Became Man, is a significant book because it explains the nature of the atonement much more clearly than was explained leading up to him. But I want to mention Anselm not because of his big intellect and his philosophy and his, you know, rethinking the atonement more biblically, but for his preoccupation with God. I've read this quote many years ago, but let me read it to you again. This Anselm in the year 1100-ish, he wrote his book in 1095, so he, he lives at the end of the 11th century, beginning of the 12th. He writes this, up now, slight man, or small man, little humanity. Up now, little man, flee for a little while your occupations. Hide yourself from, for a time from your disturbing thoughts. Cast aside now your burdening cares and put away your toilsome business. Yield room for some little time to God. And rest for a while in him. Enter the inner chamber of your mind. Shut out all thoughts except those of God. And such as can aid you in seeking him. Speak now. He turns his advice toward himself. Speak now my whole heart. Speak now to God saying. I seek your face. Your face Lord will I seek. Great call from a man in the 1100s to the believer to forget ourselves and be preoccupied with God, and in doing that, to find our hearts at rest. 
Well, centuries later, mid-1800s in London, the famous Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, gave similar advice, just a lot shorter. This is what Spurgeon said. Labor, oh my soul, to know your nothingness and learn it by contemplating God's greatness. Two ways you can try to forget yourself. One way just doesn't work, and one way is wonderful. One way that doesn't work is to sit down and say, I've got to not think about myself. Don't think about myself. Don't think about myself, you know. So that doesn't work. Or you could turn your heart's gaze on him and seeing him in whatever facet you're looking at, this great jewel, whether it's his perfections or his actions, Seeing God, you are so gripped with him, his worth, that it's hard to remember anyone else. Well, self-forgetfulness, <clears throat> being amazed at God, being, being, you know, standing in awe of his worth, is not just something that happens at conversion. Obviously, it's something that happens on Sunday mornings, we hope, but it's, it's the life of worship that we owe him. Worshiping God, being preoccupied with God, and that glorious preoccupation and self-forgetfulness fueling a life of obedience, a life of holiness, is really the heart of Christianity. A.W. Tozer, we're going to jump another century, you know Tozer, mid-1900s, so not mid-1800s like Spurgeon. Mid-1900s, Tozer looked at American evangelical churches and he gave this warning. He said, we are here to be worshipers first and workers only second. We take a convert at our church. We take a convert and immediately make a worker out of him. But God never meant it to be this way. God meant that convert should first learn to be a worshiper. And after that, he can learn to be a worker. The work done by a worshiper will have eternity in it. And then he asked this question. What good is our busy religion if we have lost the majesty, reverence, worship, and the awareness of the divine? We talked about worship as being gripped by the worth of God and then expressing it back to him in whatever way is appropriate. So it's fueled by truths of God. Worship has to flow from good theology, but not just good theology in the head or good theology you know, in our concepts, but good theology grabbed hold of, understood, studied, applied, and loved. It's not enough that we agree with the right terms. God is honored when the believer delights in the truths that God has given us. When we talk about a life of worship, like Paul does when he says whether we eat or drink, even the simplest things that we do, we can do them for the glory of God. It really is just saying that all of life now, since all of life has been purchased by Christ and all of life is ruled by Christ, everywhere we go, every day of the week, we have the opportunity of waking up 
and seeing his worth, the whole day becomes the response. Even if we're just chasing kids or driving to work or cleaning up or mowing the yard, we do what we do for his pleasure, out of love for him. We do what we do for his honor. When we talked about worship, we talked about the fact that it's not just on Sunday mornings and it's not just, uh, and, and, and it, you know, so it includes all of life, but we did talk about the kind of worship that God doesn't accept. Let me remind you of that before we look at our passages this morning. We do have to offer worship to God in a way that he has commanded. We don't get to be self-styled worshipers. So we have to worship the right God. That's self-explanatory. But we also have to worship the right God without any attempt to adjust him, to put him in a form that we would feel fits with us better. We worship the right God by giving him what he calls for, the best. And if we come to him and give him the least, we give him the sick and the lame sheep instead of the healthy sheep, like in Malachi's day, then he doesn't accept it. We worship God, but we don't use our worship as a substitute for obeying him in other, perhaps costly areas of our lives. Remember what Samuel told King Saul? When Saul disobeyed God, but then had a great big worship service, and it certainly looked Probably to most people like Saul loved the Lord, but King Saul did not love the Lord. Samuel rebuked him and said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed or listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination, of witchcraft. And insubordination, doing what we want, putting our desires above his, is as the iniquity, is as iniquity and idolatry. To live for ourselves is idolatry. We're God. And to come to church and to put on a big display of worship does not in any way substitute for this. Well, we've talked about this for weeks, and I think every believer would say, I, I agree. And I know that it is right and that he deserves a wholehearted, undistracted preoccupation with his worth that results in the happiest and most cheerful of self-dedication in the simple things and in the religious things. But how, how can I be more consistent in that? How can I grow in that? Because I see in myself, and I would imagine that you see in yourselves, a tendency to get distracted, to become disgruntled, to be complaining, to be cool and indifferent, to drift, to be sluggish. And it's as if sometimes worship flows naturally. And, you know, as soon as we pick up our Bible in the morning, the things that are said in that book, it, it, they grip us. And we look and we think, why, why was I ever slow? Why did my pace ever, you know, why did it ever slacken? God, 
I'll never drift from you again. And then sometimes you pick up a Bible and you think, I don't know if it's worth the effort. Is Christ worth living for? Is the triune God worth a life that is lived Godward for his pleasure, for his honor? I mean, that is an easy question to answer if you're standing where I'm standing. But we don't get to answer it standing here. I don't get to answer it just standing here. We have to answer it this afternoon at our house, tomorrow at work, or chasing the kids, or cleaning up the kitchen, or dealing with situations in our family with adult children that break our hearts, or reaching out to a neighbor, or sacrificially serving. That's where we have to answer the question, is he really worth a life of worship? The answer, of course, is yes. How do you move yourself when you're sluggish? And for that, we're going to look this morning at some examples from Scripture where we have in the Bible believers who are in various situations, and as they describe their situation to us, Eventually, they come to what we call a doxology, a passage where they just seem to be unable to do anything but stop and shout out, erupt in praise to God. So we want to look at these doxologies. You know many of them. We use them to close our service often. The end of the book of Jude, the end of chapter 13 in Revelation, chapter 16 in Romans, where Paul talks about now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel. And so it's a doxology, the word, uh, it's a Greek, two Greek words thrown together into one English word. Doxa means glory or worth, weightiness of God, the opposite of God being a light matter. So God is the being who possesses infinite worth or glory. And logia is just the word for speech. So it's speaking the worth of God, speaking the glory of God. We would say praises. So how can we have a life that is a life of doxology? How can we have a life that seems in the simple things or in the very religious things, in the insignificant moments or the apparently very serious decisions of life, how can we have a life that seems to speak the worth of God to him and in front of others. And for that, we have doxologies in scripture. Now, let me say, a doxology is a little different than a benediction. You can use a doxology as, as a benediction. We think the end of a service is a benediction or we sing a doxology. But if we're being precise with the word, a benediction is a blessing. So those passages in scripture which describe the blessings that God, the, the kind gifts that God has provided for his people that they can expect to receive from him, those are benedictions. Oftentimes, benedictions and doxologies come in the same verse. So as in Hebrews uh, at the end of chapter 13, where it talks about, you know, God will, you know, now to this God who, who gives all these things to us and provides everything we need for obedience, to him be glory. So benediction, God is providing all these things. Doxology, we speak the worth of that God. What we want to do is since 
God has given us in the Bible so many examples of this where believers in these situations that are very different have something in common. They all end up telling us of the greatness of our God. Let's look at some of those examples and see if we can find in them counselors for us. When we are in the various circumstances of the Christian life, can we bring ourselves, can we motivate ourselves, can you stir yourself, can you fuel a doxological life, a life that speaks of the worth of our God, a life of worship? Well, let's look at these, and you're going to have to be quick with your fingers because we're going to be jumping around a lot, and we're going to have to move quickly. I can only just kind of point you, and then we go, or we would be here a very long time because I want us to look at a number of passages, and through these passages, uh, we can see reasons to stir ourselves and examples from other believers who had to stir themselves to worship God. And the first is found in a very popular, well-known one, Romans 11, verse 33. So if you have your Bible, jump to Romans 11, 33. And in Romans 11, 33, I'm starting here because I, I don't think that really there is another appropriate place. Or maybe we'd say there isn't a more appropriate place. We read Revelation 4 and 5, and I wish that you and I came into this world the kind of people that Revelation 4 and 5 is the place where we, need to, where we would be happy to start in praising God, but that is not us. We do not love the splendor of the triune God because we're good people that love the right kind of a king. We love God, John says in his epistle, because he first loved us. I wish we were such pure, such innocent beings that like the angels in heaven, we could just start with chapter 4 of Revelation and say, where do we start in praise? Well, it's obvious. Look at him. Look at him in his uncreated splendor. Look at him in his perfections. Brilliant, blinding, though they are even to the angels who cover their face before him. But there he is. And in all of his absolute perfection, where else would you start? And the answer is, well, for Adam's fallen race, we can't start there. We never start there. We start with the gospel, with the cross. Luther, the monk, Luther, the monk said, if I can paraphrase him, he said, I used to have a theology of glory. You know, I used to think, well, that, that's the pinnacle of theology. Think about how absolutely perfect God is, how unapproachably holy he is. That's true. But he said, I prefer now a theology of the cross. That is... I cannot really know that perfect God except through the work of Christ. In, sorry, in Romans 11, we find the gospel, the response to the gospel. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul has laid out his fullest description of the work of God in rescuing sinners. He's described God's rights in chapter 1. And then he begins to describe the failure of all humanity to give God what he deserves. We do not worship the God that we realize exists because somebody made all of this. But we turn our hearts always to something that was created. So we worship something in the crea creation. A friend, ourselves, something we can handle, something we can buy. 
We worship anything other than the creator. Even the Jews, he says, are an example of man's fallen nature because even the Jews, they take religion and though it's a book all about God, they make it all about themselves. And so we are without excuse, Paul says, but the cure is not that we would fix ourselves but that God has sent his son and in a public demonstration of his justice, he has crushed the son for the sins of his people. So that when he declares a sinner to be right with him, no one, never will anyone be able to rightly say, this judge in heaven, he bends the rules for his friends. No, the payment has been made. And Paul describes faith, like Abraham's faith, that grabs hold of these truths and lives on these truths. And Paul describes the fact that faith is the way that we're united, not just benefited by Christ, but made a part of Christ, a living union with him, interwoven with him. He is our life, Paul says. And then Paul goes on to describe that this wonderful forgiveness and union with Christ, it's just the beginning. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, it's a whole new you, a new relationship, a new identity, a new position before God. You are in Christ and a new life of obedience flows from that. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he handles a pretty sticky question. If Jesus is so great, Paul, and you're traveling around the world telling the people about the Messiah, why is it that just about every Jew we know rejects him? And Paul explains, God has not been unfaithful and his promises aren't failing. And he explains this whole issue of Abraham's children, they are the spiritual children of Abraham, have always been believers. After all of that, and before Paul talks about us giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, you know that he just can't quite get to chapter 12 before he bursts out in praise to this God whose infinite wisdom and power has been exercised in the rescue of his enemies. And even though many people in church that day, in his day, were not believing, it did not in any way tarnish God's glory. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We have to start there. We cannot start in any other place other than the cross by an astonishing friendship. Offered by the offended king to the offending criminal through the death of his son, I am brought near. And it doesn't matter if right now it seems that so many people are disinterested in this Jesus. It does not tarnish the glory of my God. And can you not be gripped by that on Monday morning in a way that makes you happy to live the whole day for his pleasure? For his honor. That's the starting place. It's not the only place. I want us to think of some places perhaps that we don't normally think of. So 
we're not going to go to Revelation 4 and 5. I want us to look at Psalm 72. If you have your Bibles, turn there. It covers the same themes as for, as Revelation 5 in particular. In Psalm 72, the psalmist speaks of this peculiar privilege of belonging to God in light of the fact that God has provided a king and God would sustain the king. And it strangely is a psalm not written by David, but by the son of David, who is a partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. David, your son will sit on the throne. Solomon sat on the throne. Your son will build a temple. Solomon built a temple. But Solomon is the ant mound. He is the immediate partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But the, you know, the Mount Everest is Jesus of Nazareth that we just read about from the, from the line of David, the son of David. Solomon writes this hymn, this song of praise And in Psalm 72, he praises God, contemplating the rule of a coming righteous king and all the benefits that will come when those who are ruled by this righteous king walk with him. So not just the benefits God gives us directly, but the benefits God gives us through a perfect king. Let me just read a few verses to you. Verse 1, give the king your judgments, O God. Solomon prays, and your righteousness to the king's sons. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So Solomon's praying, and of course, he's involved in that prayer. Give me wisdom. Let my rule produce this. But we know that this speaks ultimately of Christ. Verse 8, may he, may this king, rule from sea to sea. Solomon never did. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Christ does. Verse 12, for he, this king, he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. May his name endure forever, verse 17. May his name increase as long as the sun shines, and let men bless themselves by him, by this king. Let all nations call him blessed. And then at the end, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Do you need anything more to stir yourself to a cheerful, Godward, worshiping life? Do you need anything more than the simple realization that because The one who has saved you is the exalted Lord at the right hand of the Father. And as the the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, you receive every privilege that he has purchased through him. Do you need more than that? When John saw Christ in chapter 5 exalted, there's 
my savior. There's the one I walked with, I ate next to, I leaned my head on his shoulder. There's the one that I slept next to. There's the one I asked questions of. There's the one that died in front of us. There's the one that was buried, was raised, ascended. And now he, a man, true humanity, united to the deity, now a man rules at the right hand of the father. And like Paul says, that means every aspect of his rule will bring benefit to his people. Do you need more than that for a life of happy, self-forgetful preoccupation? There is enough bad news on your phone this morning to make you distracted and grumpy and complaining like the rest of the world. But there is in this son of David enthroned, which Solomon pleaded for by faith, we look back on, there is enough in that king to free us from all the paralyzing, complaining, worrying fear to live for him who rules over a kingdom, Hebrew says, that just cannot be shaken. Let me give you another example. Believers go through seasons, I'll give you two, where the liar attempts to accuse God to us in such a way, or accuse us to God, that if we listen to the liar at times like this, a cloud of despair just covers the life. And it could hardly be a life that anyone would look at and say, what a God you belong to. I mean, we just see his worth in the way you gladly can't seem to be preoccupied with yourself because you're preoccupied with him. And even in simple things, you seem to delight to give those to this God. Well, Psalm 41. David is sick. David is not just sick. That, that's not pleasant. But David is sick, and the political enemies of David are hoping that he's going to die and he will be removed and they can go ahead and accomplish or have whatever they want to, but he keeps inhibiting them. So in Psalm 41, I'm going to read verse 1 through 5 and then jump down to 10 through 13. Look what David says. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. Now David's saying, how happy is the man, a human man, who takes pity on people who are down, who are sick and helpless. So the Lord will protect that man and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him, David prays, over to the desires of his enemies. Now David turns his prayer to himself. The Lord will sustain, well, sorry, still to that man. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed, in his illness, you will restore him to health. As for me, verse 4, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Verse 11, by this I know that you're pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me in your presence forever. Verse 13, the doxology. Blessed be the God, be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting past to everlasting future. Amen and amen. 
So David looks at people that are sick and hurting. David looks at himself with a soul sickness, and he realizes there is an enemy that mocks. We didn't work through the entire passage, but he talks a lot about the mocking of the enemies and the hope that he's going to be removed from the scene. Well, we have many in our church presently who, because of facing very serious physical health issues, can feel isolated and can feel as if God maybe has left them to themselves or is tempt, maybe they're tempted to listen to the enemy, accuse God to them, and he mocks your boast when the doctor's report is frightening. Boasts are fine when we talk about how great Jesus is and there's not the doctor's report, but what about when the doctor's report comes and what we prayed for was not given and the enemy begins his lies. You can go to David and whether it's physical or soul sickness, both of them involved in this chapter, you can go to David and say, how do you bring your soul to delight in God and live gladly a life of worship when this is what you're experiencing? Another example, Psalm 57, in verse 5 through verse 11. One of the hardest circumstances for a Christian to delightfully live based on the worth of God is when even the promises of God seem to have failed. And Psalm 57, David writes this, and verse 5, uh, sorry, verse let me start with verse 4. David writes, and well, I tell you what, I'm going to read it. I have it in my notes, but I can tell that my notes are wonky. So let me, let me read it out of the Bible. In Psalm 57, listen to what David says, starting in verse 4, down through the end. My soul is among lions. What's he talking about? When was David's soul among the lions? It is a time when David, who has been chosen by God to be the next king, because God has rejected Saul. David is told he'll be king. David didn't seek this. He didn't ask to be king. He's out watching the sheep, and Samuel the prophet goes through all of his brothers and finally finds David, and God says, that's the one. That, yes, the little boy watching the sheep, that's the one, and Eventually, David is made king, and all these wonderful promises are made, but between Samuel's first visit and David taking a throne and having no more enemies trying to kill him, it was a long stretch. David, at this point in Psalm 57, is hiding in caves from Saul because Saul is hunting David to kill him. So if you're David, it looks this way. I was happy doing what my father told me to do. I was, Jesse told me I had to watch the sheep. I'm the younger brother. Of course, I get the bad job. So I'm out there doing the sheep work. And then this prophet comes and says, I'm going to be king. And that makes me, you know, the number one target it is painted on my back for King Saul. Saul hates me. Saul wants to kill me. It's not just Saul. Saul's armies are hunting me. All the promises of God would appear at times like this to be failing. But look at verse four. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men 
whose teeth are spears and arrows. Their tongue is a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into it, in the, into the midst of it, Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise, praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Verse 11. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. What do you do when you read the New Testament promises and you're careful with them? You, 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 know, you study them in a way that you're not taking them out of context and you don't have unbiblical expectations. You keep them connected to the rest of the book. But after studying them carefully and you see what Christ has promised his people, but at the present moment or for a season, it seems as if God's promises are failing. Can you wake up and live a Godward, happy life of worship? You can, but you might want some counsel from David. Go back to Psalm 57. See what David says about God. Let me give you another. When we look at the people of God or at our church specifically or at your family or at yourself, if you're a Christian, and you, you look at us, and you see how unfaithful we can be, and you wonder, will God still be faithful to us? Why would he? Perhaps you feel. And it's hard to live a life of joyful devotion when everywhere you look, the church seems to be drifting. How can you live a, a life of joyful worship to God when even the Christian scene around you appears to be a complete failure. Look at Psalm 106. In Psalm 106, the psalmist, this is one of those psalms where the psalmist, he opens with praises toward God and then he moves to recounting example after example after example of Israel's unfaithfulness and then of God's faithfulness. He disciplines them but he does not cast them off. He still shows them mercy. He pities them. And as you look at the psalm, you can see that the psalmist, looking at the sin of God's people, then looking at the faithfulness of God, eventually this heartbroken believer arrives at doxology again. He speaks the worth of his God. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. Psalm 106. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness, it's everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth his praise? Can anybody explain it? Verse 3, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, he cries in verse 4, O Lord, in your favor toward your people. Visit me with your salvation, that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. 
God, let me be one of your family. Verse 6. Light and dark contrast. Verse 6. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. And then the list begins. The unfaithfulness of Israel. From the very beginning, he rescues them from Egypt. Then at the Red Sea, they complain. Oh, God's just going to kill us out here. There's an army here. There's a Red Sea here. They rebel. They complain over and over, example after example. They forget the kindness of the Lord. They forget the promises of the Lord. They forget the commands of the Lord. They chase after other gods. They join themselves with pagan nations, even sacrificing their children on their altars. And God hands them over to enemies for a season to be disciplined. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 44. Nevertheless, in spite of everything, nevertheless, he, God, looked upon their, the rebels, their distress when he heard their cry. And he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. Verse 47 A prayer, verse 48, a doxology. Save us, O Lord, our God. If you treated them like that, be merciful to us too. And gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the God, the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting even to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't find it easy when I see my unfaithfulness And the unfaithfulness of believers that you admire as they stumble. I don't find it easy to wake up in the morning and jump out of bed and say, this this day will be lived for the king. But I can go to Psalm 106 and get counsel for how to do that. Jude 24 and 25 that we read all the time. The doxology there. Where he says, now to him who is able, you remember, to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in his presence, the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And we read that and you think, well, I would feel that way. I would talk that way. I would live that way if I was in the New Testament times and I was in Jude's church. I mean, it must be wonderful. I bet everybody just glowed, but actually not. Do you remember the beginning of the letter? Verse 3, Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. Can you imagine Jude at the desk? And there's the little wastebasket, and it's full of crumpled papers where he starts and stops and starts. I wanted to write and talk about the fullness of our salvation. But, he said, even though I made every effort to do that, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. You're going to have to go to war. This faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Why? Why conflict in the church? Well, verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. 
Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus, uh, Master and Lord Jesus Christ. He describes the false teachers there for a while, and then in verse 17, he gives them some things they need to be doing. You, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some, those people around you, who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So how to help others, different ways. It is after describing the danger of these false teachers and, the, and the, the way that they're going to have to now really put their shoulder to the wheel as a church that he breaks into this doxology. Now, now that I've talked about these false teachers sneaking in the church and all the needs and the battles and the carefulness that you're going to have to show, now to him who keeps you who guards you, who protects you, who does not let you stumble finally. It's a great reason to burst forth in praise when we see troubles even in the church, even in ourselves, even in our homes with those that are believers. And we think, how are we going to ever make it to the end? Well, him, the preserver. Oh, there's just so much. Let me give you one more. First Chronicles 29 I've had to throw out so many, but this will get us started. I picked this one for last. First Chronicles 29, verse 10 through 13. Because this is the chapter in Chronicles where David is, he's old. He's, this is the end of David's life. He's handing things on over to Solomon. But as he's about to die and he's looking back as an old person, he's looking back at all the mercies of God that have hounded him from the beginning. And this, of course, is post-David and Bathsheba, post-murdering Uriah. So David is a man who can look and who has made it clear to everyone else, who can see his shameful sin, but he sees the mercies of God having washed him, not attributing to him his rightful guilt, but placing it on the Messiah. David, at the end of his life, calls everybody together and talks about the greatness of God. Verse 10. First Chronicles 29, verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord. And then he just describes the God that he's known and walked with since being a boy. Yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. 
Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And then what follows is David just becoming very personal and saying, who who was I that you ever paid attention to me, that you sought me, that you made a covenant with me? I'm a nobody. But at the end of his life, he gathers the leaders, the nation, and he leads them in an expression of this worth of God. So, if you are in the latter part of your earthly journey, humanly speaking, if you're an older saint, if you're retired, this doesn't count for Phil Morris because Phil can't retire. Phil cannot. He will work till the last. But most of us that we think of as retired, if you're in the autumn of life, can you not look back? Tomorrow morning when you wake up and you have new aches and pains and you know at that age they don't go away. They just become the constant companion, unwanted but there. Can you not wake up and follow David's example and gather in your thoughts the faithfulness of your God and be amazed like David? Why did he ever call me and get up and live a life that is doxological, that speaks the worth of God. If we think this is very self-centered and we have so many people around us that are needy, why would we focus on this? Don't forget that there is no evangelistic tool in your arsenal that compares really with worship. The world understands clubs so the world understands Christ Church New Albany, you belong to the club. So you come to the club when the club meets. You don't have to love Christ to come to the building on Sunday morning. The world understands people who say, I think this being might really be there and I'm going to do what he says because I'm planning on him giving me a lot of good things. So it's, it's, it's a bargain. They understand that. They may not agree with you, but they understand the concept of bribing a superior. But the world has no explanation for the average Christian who at that moment may not be in a very joyful season of life. And they are thrilled to forget themselves because they think of him and his worth is spoken in front of everyone in simple Ways of the way we, we live, in the way we talk. And when all around us there are so many reasons to just despair and to be grumpy, they can't find it in us because we keep looking at the worth of our God and that compels the happiest consecration. How do they explain a group of people coming together on Sunday morning and not coming for what we're going to get, but coming just to give and give, even though he has already given you everything? You didn't have to be here on a Sunday morning, Christian, to make sure you get into heaven. You come because you love him. Do not stop short of a life fueled by these facts, a life fueled to live for him. 
And if you're having trouble, there's a lot of counselors we can go back to. Well, I'll read a doxology that I couldn't cover. It comes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul describes the, the um, astonishingness of him, a murderer of believers, being made an ambassador for that same king. So that his life would be a picture of grace that no one would look at and then think, well, but he's a really good guy. So at the end of all this talk about amazing love, verse 17, he says this. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.